0: Good morning, Cornerstone. How are you all? Good. It's good to see you. My name is John. Uh, As Scott said, I'm a pastor here in town. I've been married to my wife, Karen, for 18 years, if you can believe that. I used to say, yes, make the joke because I'm younger that, uh, yeah, we got married when we're 12. But as time goes on, that joke doesn't work as much. I'm starting to bald Um, We have three boys, Lincoln, Elliot, and Theo, and I've been in Prescott my whole life. In fact, uh, all all the way back, probably 30 years ago, who knows Jim McKee? He's one of your elders. You guys know Jim? Um, I heard that he was up for eldership in the church, and I wanted to write and and send in my vote of disqualification uh, (laughs) because I was at his house on Barmar Lane when I was probably seven, eight years old, and Jim offered me a glass of milk. And I was taught by my parents that uh, if you are given something at a guest house, what do you do? You consume it. It doesn't matter. So I take a drink of this milk, and it's the worst milk I've ever tasted in my entire life. And there's about 16 ounces of it in a plastic cup. I drink the whole thing, and Jim's looking at me strangely, and he goes, How's the milk? Good. And he says, That was buttermilk. I was like, you're a terrible person. <laughs> and so I read, uh, you know, First Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and qualifications of elders and didn't see that that was disqualifying. So I uh, withheld my joke uh, and vote for him. But as Scott said, we go back, uh, he said seven years. It feels like it was way longer than that. We played basketball together, <laughs> me and Scott. Uh, my dad ran me over True story, and Scott came and he visited me in the hospital um, and then he even showed up at my wedding. see so that 's good news. I heard you all are going through first john i 've been assigned first John two eighteen through twenty seven and so what i 'm going to do is read that for us, pray, and if you 'd like a title, your series is invitations Today is an invitation to Abide. So, I promise you, this text is the best part of everything that we're going to have today. So, let's give our attention to God's Word. Uh, John writes, and he says, "'Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour.'" They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you, have all, you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. So, Father, as we turn our hearts and attention now to your word, we ask that you'd be gracious to speak to us, minister to us, and let your word shape our very lives and hearts as we follow you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now, if you have not recalled what's going on in the letter, I'll do a quick recap and reminder. If you read through the letter of 1 John, it is a letter that has a lot of sweetness to it. And there is, if you didn't notice from the text, there's some severity. John talks about forgiveness, that Jesus is our advocate. And he plays on these themes of Christ as love and light. And in the midst of that, for this first century church, there's conflict, there's crisis, and there's denial happening. But John gives us this clue in the first chapter that's really helpful of why he's writing the letter. He says, I write this, that your joy may be complete, or full. And so even as we get into this text about antichrists and deceivers and all this stuff, the the reason isn't for fear. It's not for shame. It's not for panic. It's for joy. And, And it's as though as he gets into this text that there is reverberations of the teachings of Jesus all throughout it. It was Jesus himself that promised his followers that not everything would be easy breezy. If you'll recall in Matthew uh, chapter number 24, Jesus said, then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray. If possible, even the elect see I have told you beforehand. John 16, he says, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so the people of God here, as John is writing, he's attempting to root them in these promises of Jesus that yes, difficulty, trial, and tribulation would come to followers of Christ. And yet, there's joy, there's opportunity, there's this invitation to abide in Jesus. And so in First John chapter 2, what he's doing, if you were to tag any word to this letter, it is simply discipleship. It's a word that church people throw around often, and it just simply means to to learn to follow Christ, learning the way of the master. And in our text this morning, I want to submit that John's doing three things in discipleship. First, and we'll see in the text, he's reminding them of who they are. You see that in that first verse that we read, children. Second, he's reminding them of when they are. If you noticed, it is the last hour And then finally, he reminds them in multiple different ways of what they have in Jesus and how to take that promise and that goodness and apply it into the places of everyday life. So you see it again in verse 18, children, it is the last hour. There's a certain point where being called a kid uh, is no longer enamoring, right? It's somewhat condescending and that's not what John is doing. He's reminding them of who they are in Christ, that they're children of God the Father, and that in that, they're beloved, in that, they're kept, in that, they're safe, in that, they're provided for. You know, you could write a song, maybe you're a good, good father, who you are, who you are, and I'm loved by you, it's who I am, it's who I am. Jake, if you need somebody for afterwards, I'm all mic'd up, ready to go, buddy. But there's so many things in this life and world that threaten that day by day. The writer Henry Nowen says this. He says, every time you feel hurt, offended, or rejected, you have to dare to say to yourself, these feelings, as strong as they may be, are not telling me the truth about myself. The truth, even though I cannot feel it right now, is that I am the chosen child of God, precious in God's eyes, called the beloved from all eternity and held safe in an everlasting embrace. If you are in Christ, if you have placed your faith, your hope in Jesus, that is true of you for all time. You are his kid. You are kept, you are cared for, You are safe. Much of discipleship is a reminder of who we are, but not only that, it's when we are. You see, in the first century Jewish world, there was an understanding that they were living in what they deemed the old age. Right? There was an Old Testament understanding of time. I'm borrowing this from uh, my seminary professor, Mike Goheen. And so the expectation was this when it came to time, that they lived in the old age of sin, death, evil, and Satan. They looked at the Roman Empire as that. They believed that the Spirit would descend, Messiah would come, and that would usher in a new age of knowledge, of God, love, joy, justice, all of those promises and prophecies that they would read in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, that that would come in Messiah. Did that happen? Kind of. Jesus enters in and he ushers in the new age, but it's not necessarily what those first century Jewish uh, people were expecting. Here's what actually happened. Is that, yes, in the old age, there's the powers of sin and death and evil and Satan. And in the new age, there's the power of spirits renewing work. Jesus comes and through the cross. He ushers in the new age, but it did not fully and finally Arrive. Theologians have named uh, this gap right here the already not yet of God's kingdom. That do we experience the powers of Satan, sin, and death today? Well, just turn on the news. Yes. Every day we're exposed to it, we see it, we feel its effects in our lives, in our bodies, in our world. But at the same time, is Christ alive? Is the tomb empty? Is God's spirit working and powerful and able to bring renewal and revival? Yes. And so followers of Jesus from the first century live in this overlap of the ages. And it's important for us to remember that because if we don't remember when we are, we tend to get pulled too far to one age or the other. And I don't know that it's a personality profile test. Some of you may be old age kind of people that, you know, it's sort of the, if you remember the SNL skit, Debbie Downer, like you hear good news and you're like, yeah, but, and then others of you, um, I don't, I don't want to name names or point fingers, but, uh, Miss Karen, she taught our kids, she just has a new age kind of face and demeanor. You're excited. I've known you for how long? 20 plus years. And she's got that joy, 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 joy down in her heart. Where? It's there. I want more of that. But for followers of Jesus, we live in the overlap of the ages. Knowing when we are helps frame what is going on in the world that we live in. There's going to be renewal and repentance and there will be denial and deceit. And what John is helping these churches do and these followers do is find stability in the midst of the storm and in doing so, he had, employs a term that has taken on a lot of baggage for us in the last 2,000 years, antichrist. Now, that's a fun word to have in the text that you're supposed to teach as a guest at a church. Part of my temptation is just to get all sorts of speculation and then give you Josh's email and uh, he might not be able to talk fully without coughing, but you know, then that's going to be his problem for you. But it's a term that has gotten a lot of baggage. But what's clear in the text is John means an individual and people as a whole that left, did not continue with the church, and are against the lordship of Jesus. They deny Jesus as Messiah, the Roman emperor as one, and church people who had left their Presence in midst. And it's not kind of what we know here in Prescott. I've, uh, like I said, I've been in Prescott my whole life in church hoppings, um, something that's been going on for ages. He's not talking about people that went from Cornerstone to some other church. He, he doesn't mean that. He means people that have left the faith. And again, in our day and age, this term in combination with what Jesus has said and Paul and John and Revelation and Daniel has kind of created a little bit of an unholy, like, where's Waldo? You remember that book? And so you hear the term Antichrist and you go, well, well who is it? Or like the game Guess Who? Like, well, you know, you flip them all up. You're like, well, are they suggesting a one-world government? Do they have a mustache? No. Is it Vladimir Putin? Like, that's not what the scriptures is giving us. Here's a, a definition from Erdman's Bible Dictionary. It says the Bible provides neither a name nor concrete historical claims or details designating a particular person as the Antichrist. Attempts have been made at various points in history to identify this evil figure with specific individuals such as Nero, Napoleon, and Hitler. Most current interpreters are content to view the Antichrist as a general embodiment of evil. And so instead of going deep into the woods of who that might be, again, Scripture doesn't guide us in that direction. It simply gives us an awareness that there is and will be evil in this world, embodied in leaders and figures and in groups of people that deny Jesus as Messiah. Messiah. And as I was reading this text over the last couple weeks, a couple things came to mind. First is the humanity of this letter, and second is the stability. First, it's the humanity of the letter. It's easier for us to look at this term and go, ooh, Antichrist, and do a deep dive on that, but what John is reminding these people of is real people that were really with them and really left, and that really hurts. And I think if we step back and evaluate our own lives, many of us have that experience in life. Maybe that's friends. Maybe that's family members that once were a part of this thing we call the faith and the family of God and have since left in our antagonistic and hostile to the faith. Who comes to mind for you? Who is it that's kind of on the forefront of your prayers that is in this camp of being against Christ, anti-Christ. Knowing what God's people are going through, John's pressing them, uh, again, to, to notice the humanity of these people, both in and outside the church, and second, he's offering them stability in that storm. He does that, again, by reminding them who they are, they're children of God. He reminds them of when they are, that they're in the last hour, that they're in this overlap of the ages where the kingdom of God has come, but not yet fully arrived. And they're going to see this this joy and they're going to experience pain. And then finally, he gives them stability in this section by reminding them of what they have. He says this, you're anointed. You have knowledge he encourages them to be rooted and grounded, to be centered in their identity. And again, that word anointing is another term that has a ton of baggage all around it. Like, I've been in church my entire life, and you run into all sorts of people, and, and some are those that, well, have you been anointed? One of my favorite stories of being a pastor is uh, one pastor that was not fully trained on how to anoint someone with oil. And if you saw in the church that I grew up in uh, how they did it, it, was, you know, put a little oil on the finger and kind of sign of the cross on the forehead. This pastor didn't get that memo. So they do a prayer night where they're anointing people with oil and he just takes the extra virgin olive oil, pours it in the hand and just, and this lady's getting prayed for just oil dripping all down her. Is that what John's talking about? Anointing? No. As you look through scripture, you see this theme of anointing. It first pops up in Exodus chapter 28, verse 41, speaking about the priesthood. He says, and you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them. Why? And ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. They were to be marked for a mission. You see that again in 1 Samuel 16 as David is anointed king by Samuel. He's marked for a mission. What you see about this word anointing all throughout scripture is that anointing is a symbolic marker that leads towards a real life mission. And as Jesus came... And as he's instructing his followers before and after the cross, he's promising that he's going to anoint them with his spirit. He's going to mark them with his spirit so that they might be a kind of people in the world. In John 20 verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Well, how does he do that? Acts chapter one, verse eight, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so you see that Jesus marks his followers with his spirit. Why? So that they might be his witnesses in the world. God's people are anointed with God's spirit so they might display who Jesus is and what he's like in the midst of the already not yet today in the world. Here First 1 John, the spirit anoints them. He teaches them into all truth. That is who Jesus is, to abide. And so they're anointed, they're marked, so that they might Display who Jesus is and abide and experience that relational proximity with Him where they are at. And now, abide again, a term that is beautiful and a little bit nebulous. I think J.I. Packer helps us, he's a theologian. He says, Abide is an old English word for remain, stay steady, keep your position. What it means to abide in Christ is to always be resting on Him, anchored to Him, fixed in Him, drawing from Him, continually connected and in touch with Him. There is no more precious lesson to learn, no more enriching link and bond to cherish, no more vital connection to keep snug and tight so that it never loosens than this. Abiding in Christ brings peace, joy, and love, answers to prayer, and fruitfulness in service. The abiding life is the abundant life. And so if we're to learn what this abiding thing is, we need to take lessons from Jesus, John 15, in the garden. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. I'm not much of a gardener. Uh, My in-laws have some grapes. I watch them. Once in a while, I'll trim them. Uh, But from what I've seen over the years about abiding is two things. One, there's a science to it. And secondly, there's an art. First, there's science. You need sun and soil and other things. Fertilizer probably, right? Some of you green thumbs up there are like, this guy has no clue. Those grapevines are probably doing terribly. And they are. But when it comes to abiding with Christ, again, there's some, I guess you could call science to it. The things we're familiar with what we're supposed to do, right? What are you supposed to do as a Christian? Well, read your Bible. You're supposed to pray. There's community aspects. Every church says we're supposed to give, and there's scriptural evidence for that. There's fasting. There's habits and practices of the Christian life that we're pressed towards in that. Things to do. But then I think what, at least I don't necessarily, uh, and part of it's just the way my brain works, There's, there's an art to that. And that is paying attention to the time, to the seasons, and what's needed in that. Sort of the delicate dance of it all. Christianity was never meant to be just a scientific experiment or where you just check off things off the list. There's a life and an art behind it all. And in life, as we follow Jesus, there's doldrums, there's experience of gaps of what we thought would happen and what is actually unfolded in life. And what God's people are to do there is to discern what's needed. When pain seems to perpetuate, when uh, suffering seems to cloud, and we go, oh yeah, there's pruning is part of this process. There was uh, never a promise of outcomes, but there was this promise of experience with him in the midst of it all. And so we kind of can evaluate our lives under, yeah, there's aspects of life with God of what we're supposed to do and, and how then we go about experiencing that. There's art and science to it all. But what I want to encourage us in is there's a shift that can happen in our hearts and minds when we remember these aspects of discipleship together. Of who we are, of when we are, and then of what we have. John says we are God's children He says we are in the last hour, that we live in the midst of the overlap of the ages. He says what we have is this experience and this opportunity to abide with Christ. He has anointed us with his spirit and given us access to him through faith. And and when we slow down enough to see that, to experience that, to live into that reality, something happens. And so we can practice that here for. A minute or two. You can stop. I don't know how busy your day has been so far. It's Father's Day. Hustle, bustle, get to church. Here we are. Let's take a deep breath. We go. <sighs> now every single one of us have stuff in the front of our brain. What's going on the rest of the day? The people that we're concerned about, Again, family members, kids, maybe you're going to be crossing paths with uh, someone who you're not a huge fan of later today for brunch or dinner or whatever. You go, what do you do with that? Work is impending for tomorrow. You got all these things to do. You're worried about your health and maybe you're waiting for the results of some test. Remember first who you are. In that place, you are God's child. You're loved by him fully. And the evidence of that is Jesus who came, who died, who rose to give you and me life. You are beloved. And there's nothing you can do to change that. Remember where you are. You know, there's that old song, Mama said there'd be days like this. There'd be days like this. My mama said, Mama. said. This is how my brain works. These songs impede. But but remember, you are in the overlap of the ages. We are in a, a season and a time where the kingdom of God has arrived. There's access to His power and His presence where we are, and Jesus promised there would be deceit, there would be denial, there would be difficulty, there'd be pain for God's people where they are. You go, oh yeah, he said it would be like this. Now in our time, there's definitely uniqueness to the, the struggles and complexities of what we are facing in the 20th century, 21st century. I admit that fully. Raising kids in this world is complex for me as a human being, but it's not new. People wiling out and being crazy, that's not new. History shows us that. So you go, oh, I'm the beloved child of God. I'm in the overlap of the ages. And then if you are reminded of what you have, you're anointed by his spirit. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within you, abides with you, gives you access to the Father through Jesus by the spirit. You have knowledge he's given us his word and one another in this whole process of following him. Now, how do you feel a couple minutes after that? I hope you go, oh, I can deal with that awkward family member today with grace. I I can take that next step. Those voices, as loud as they may be in your mind, they don't have the final say. Jesus does. You know, it's kind of like uh, Frodo in the Lord of the Rings, where he says "The Gandalf, uh, I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. And so do I, says Gandalf. And so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that has been given us. So we didn't sign up for this. I've had that phrase in my head a lot lately. I didn't sign up for this. And the truth is, I'm not unique. None of us did. None of us signed up for this life in this world. We didn't get a say, but here we are. And so what are we going to do with that? And what I've been encouraged in is that these times, in these kinds of days, though it seems completely unlikely, can be the ground for revival and renewal for God's people and in the world. I've been reading a book uh, by Mark Sayers. He's an Australian pastor and theologian uh, called The Non-Anxious Presence. And he says this, dark times call for disciples with depth. Yes, there are times when it appears as if darkness is winning. When the direction of culture, the circumstances of our lives, the poverty of spiritual life among God's people seems tilted toward difficulty, decline, and even death rather than renewal. This is particularly true in our gray zone moment. He speaks about uh, the rapid pace of change due to technology. And we're not yet in the next version of the world that is going to come from that. He says, the church seems divided, the culture unraveling, and the world reeling towards chaos. Yet at moments like ours, we must remember that God has seeded the world with his dream of renewal. And so we can abide in the in-between. In this passage, we see sweetness. We're God's kids. We have what we need. And we see severity. There's people who have gone out that have denied Jesus is the Christ. They were part of us. They are no longer of us. There's that heartbreak in the midst of it. And so for this morning, I think there's uh, three things kind of as we close. There's a thing to remember, a skill to learn, and a life to enjoy. So first, a thing to remember. Just a recap, who we are, God's kids. When we are, it's the last hour. What we have, everything you need. You have everything you need. Not everything you want. Everything you need to follow Jesus well with his people today. That's what we are called to remember day by day. Second, a skill to learn. In abiding, we learn to press the promises of God into the places of everyday life. And so where's their pain? Where are their problems? Where's their difficulty? Press the promises of God into those places of life. That's how we learn to follow him well where we are. Press the promises of God into the places of everyday life. Rather than go into panic, rather than going to anxiety, rather than go into darkness and depression and all that, learn to press the promises of God into the pain and places of everyday life. And then finally, a life to enjoy. He says, I write these things uh, to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie just as he taught you, abide in him. He has promised us eternal life. And that life is one that isn't just when we die, though it is that. Eternal life breaks in to the here and the now. And it's something that we can enjoy today. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, he said, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he sent. So we can experience eternal life simply in knowing and enjoying God today as we abide. One of my favorite quotes of eternal life comes from Dallas Willard. He says, Jesus' enduring relevance is based on the historically proven ability to speak to, to heal, to heal. And empower the individual human condition. He matters because of what he brought and what he still brings to ordinary human beings. Living their ordinary lives and coping daily with their surroundings. He promises wholeness for their lives. In sharing our weakness, he gives us strength and imparts through his companionship a life that has the quality of eternity. In sharing our weakness, Jesus, he comes alongside us and he imparts, he gives to us strength and imparts through his companionship, that is abiding, a life that has the quality of eternity. And so in some way, I guess it could be said that you can smell like heaven. You can give off this fragrance of God, not by checking off all the boxes by getting all the answers right on the test by, by simply practicing proximity with Jesus that he can infuse into you this life that is eternal John's writing he says all of these things that your joy may be complete I don't think we often equate antichrists with joy right deception with joy. But do you see this paradox here? That in Christ, he promised us this is going to be the reality for the people of God until he returns and makes all things new fully and finally. We say, Lord, haste the day when our faith shall become sight, right? But until then, he empowers his people with his spirit to experience life with him and display that to the world. And so friends today, The invitation is to abide. Maybe for some of you, that's the first time. You're in here and you don't yet know Christ. And and I hope you can see this invitation. He's calling you in. Come learn from him. What he's like. How he rolls. For others of you, it's just this encouragement to continue in the faith. Be reminded of who you are, of when you are, and of what you have in him. Let's pray. So Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you are the God who continues to reach out to us with grace, with peace, with love. And Lord, for my brothers and sisters in this room, I pray that you would help us to be reminded and to live into the truth of who we are in you. That we would follow you, trust you, place our hope and rest in you. God, that we would um, depend on you, as we have friends, family members, those that have walked away. God, that you'd use our lives to speak truth and love, and that this church here in Prescott and across the world would would more accurately display you. And we thank you for the good gifts that you've given us. Now, as we respond, as we sing, as we go out from this place. Lord, may it be with a a deeper and more fuller realization of your grace and your goodness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.